Beloved, please open your Bibles again to Proverbs chapter 1. We are taking a one-week break away from our expeditional journey through Ephesians. So back in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, uh, we saw Paul giving exhortation, God giving commands and exhortation to wives and then to husbands. Last week in the first three verses of Ephesians 6, we looked at God's words to children, and this is kind of a special one-off extension of the message to children. And we, if you were here last week, you'll remember that even the word that God used, that Paul used when he talked about children and addressed that in Ephesians chapter 1, he used a word that would certainly include young children of an age of understanding and even maybe older children and even anyone who is a child, which by virtue of the mere fact that we exist, we all are children. And beloved, when we look at the book of Proverbs, a major theme and a major way that we construct that we see when we look at it is instruction from Solomon as a father to his son and to children by extension by general. And so the message of Proverbs is for a child, for any young child that is of an age to be able to understand. Again, maybe an older child that might still be under the authority and dependence upon parents, or even an older child out of the home. The message that God gave to us back in Ephesians was children obey your parents, young children obey your parents, all children honor your parents. So what we're going to do today is have a brief high level skimming across the service of the wisdom in Proverbs. And again, this is for a child, young or old, parents, even grandparents. And beloved, the book of Proverbs is a guidance manual. It's an instruction manual for parents how to train and raise up their children. It's a guidance book for children to understand how to grow into maturity. Maybe younger children and even older children that we seek and desire to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and our Savior. Simply put, Proverbs is a manual for wise living. Now, we know when we look at Proverbs, when we look at all of Scripture, that the great eternal truths are a central theme throughout. But let me ask a question in the context of the eternal truth. When, if you are a new creature in Christ Jesus, when did your eternal life begin? Good answer, at your conversion. And what we have in Proverbs is a manifestation, an outworking of the new life, the eternal life that we have as new creatures in Christ Jesus in the here and now. And beloved, the wisdom of God contained in the pages of Scripture is a theme of Proverbs. And we even see the personification of wisdom in chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 8, where wisdom calls out to people to listen, to examine, to understand. And the message that Solomon gives in the first 29 chapters, and then Augur in chapter 30, and even King Lemuel in chapter 31 is you have to be wise to be godly and good. And beloved, the book of Proverbs in its entirety is the knowledge of how to live in God's world. It is godliness in working clothes, and it touches every aspect of what we do and who we are. Robert Heinlein was an aeronautical engineer. He was a naval officer, 
and he was a very widely published and widely read science fiction author, along with Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke. He was one of the three big sci-fi authors during the golden age of science fiction. Heinlein was also a pioneer of the subgenre of hard science, where he would give a particular interest towards scientific accuracy and logical accuracy in his writing. And by way of example, in the days before computers, he and his wife Virginia spent several days researching the mathematical equation describing an Earth-Mars rocket orbit. And he did all that for one single sentence in his novel, Space Cadet. Now, he had this quote here, and what's amazing is Heinlein, by any imagination I know or see, certainly wasn't a believer, but he understood that man is made very differently than animals. He had a great understanding of the complexity of man being made in the image of God. And I'm going to read you a quote that is kind of almost like an unsanctified summary, or it's kind of a pagan version of different aspects of Proverbs. This is what Heinlein said, quote, A human being should be able to change a diaper, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, con a ship, design a building, write a sonnet, balance accounts, build a wall, set a bone, comfort the dying, Take orders, give orders, cooperate, act alone, solve equations, analyze a new problem, pitch manure, program a computer, cook a tasty meal, fight efficiently, and die gallantly. And he finished the last sentence, specialization is for insects, end quote. Now, beloved, again, this is a presumably unsaved man describing how man male and female, can do amazing and wonderful things. And that is precisely what the book of Proverbs does. Beloved, the light from Proverbs shines into every corner. There is no shadow of life, of your life, that is left unilluminated. Every nook and cranny is swept out when we apply the wisdom that God gives to us in the book of Proverbs. And As I mentioned before, we see wisdom personified calling out, and so we can ask the question, to whom does wisdom call out, and where does wisdom call out? And the answer is, everybody and everywhere. Wisdom calls out in the real world. In our public reading of Scripture earlier, we read Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, which, by way of reminder, began the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. And then look at down at verses 20 and 21, we see the answer to the question that we just posed, to whom and where does wisdom call out? Verse 20, Solomon writes, Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of a noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her saying. And so the point there is that wisdom cries out everywhere, in the streets, in the marketplace, at the gates of the city. Beloved, Proverbs is in a sense, you could look at it as the anti-monk, anti-monastery book of the Bible. It is 
taking God's truth and applying it, again, in all aspects of our life. And beloved, we do Proverbs a great disservice if we merely vest it in some kind of priestly ephod or prophet's mantle. You see, Proverbs doesn't take you to church to use the common vernacular. Rather, Proverbs takes you home. It takes you into your school. It takes you to the workplace. It takes you into your kitchen. It takes you to your fitness center. The list can go on. Let me do one more reading here. Look at Proverbs 4, the first nine verses. Follow along as I read the word of God. Proverbs 4 and verse 1. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention so that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. And then I love this here in verse 3 because this takes a picture. Solomon is writing this as a father to a son. He's writing this as a son to King David. And here in verse 3, he even hearkens back to when he was a young child. The sermon title of this message is Wisdom for the Ages with kind of a double meaning. It's the wisdom of God, the truth of God, which marches through the channels of all time, which is always relevant, always applicable for any people at any point in time in any country at any age. And it's the wisdom for all ages, wherever one might find themselves. Verse 3, chapter 4, Solomon says, When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, that's wisdom, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom, and with all your acquiring, get understanding. Prize her, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace. She will present you with a crown of beauty. Beloved, This is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, as we launch into this high-level skimming across the surface of the wisdom in Proverbs, there are many ways in which one could outline a summary of Proverbs. John MacArthur captured it in 10 crucial lessons from a father to a son. The Presbyterian pastor Derek Thomas captured it in 12 meaningful messages to me which then overflowed to the people to whom he was preaching. Alistair Begg described his summary as fatherly advice from a friend. What we're going to do this morning here is to try to capture just from the infinite reservoir of wisdom and riches in Proverbs, three wisdoms for you to learn and to live, no matter what age you may be at. Namely, fear your God, control your body, and love your neighbor. The first one looks upwards, the second one looks inward, and the third wisdom looks outward. Again, this message is for people of all ages, so that children will learn these wisdoms, so that parents will teach these wisdoms, so that grandparents will model these wisdoms. And beloved, there are two roads you can take. Uh, Again, Proverbs deals with the evenly, seemingly trivial things of life. It gives practical wisdom for that. But overarching all of it is there are two ways. There are two roads you can take, the way of wisdom or the way of the wicked. 
And what this describes here primarily is the part of you that lives forever. Beloved, Proverbs are concise in form. They are wise in content, and usually they're easy to understand. So because of that, what I'm going to do here will be a little different. I'm going to be doing more reading of Scripture and a little less of sermonizing. And for those of you that are saying amen under your breath, I'll forgive you. (laughs) Beloved, the first wisdom to live and to learn is fear your God. This is the beginning of wisdom. This is looking upward. Now, The philosopher Plato said this, we can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark. The real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light. Much more recently, Daryl Harrison, president of Just Thinking Ministries, dean of social media at Grace to You, and a fellow of the Black Theology and Leadership Institute at Princeton Theological Seminary, wrote these choice words recently in the context of the pervading fear that seems to be sweeping across much of the Western world. This is what Daryl Harrison said, he said, we live in a society where no one wants to suffer any adversity or deal with the consequences of their decisions and actions. Consequently, fear under the guise of safety has become a self-enslaving idol to many, end quote. Does this ring true to you? It certainly does to me. Beloved, when we look at scripture, God is very, very clear. We are to fear God and God alone. We are to fear nothing but God himself. A powerful illustration of this is in Matthew, excuse me, Mark chapter 5 when Jesus is on the boat with the disciples and there's a tremendous fierce storm that comes up and all the disciples were fearful. They were afraid because of this tremendous storm and then when Jesus woke up, he instantaneously ceased not just the winds but even the waves themselves and it was a great lesson driving home the point. It is far more fearful to have the living God of creation in the boat with you than any storm that would be outside of the boat. But in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, we read that earlier. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's the beginning point. Chapter 10, verse 27. And listen to some of the ones that I read here with some of the characteristics, the consequences, the beautiful blessings and results that come and flow from the fear of the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. 14, verse 26. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. Chapter 14, verse 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life so that one may avoid the snares of death. Or chapter 19, verse 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. And then, Chapter 22, verse 4, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Beloved, that is the fear of the Lord, what it produces in his child. Now, when we think of the fear of the Lord, the unsaved, an unsaved man or woman, a person that is still under the judgment of God because of their sin should fear the eternal wrath and righteous judgment of God. The author of Hebrews says, Hebrews 10, verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
But by God's grace and mercy, we praise God that by virtue of the forgiveness of sin that we enjoy in Christ, he himself took the punishment, the wrath of God on the cross on our behalf. But we still fear God. We fear the displeasure of God. We fear the temporal chastening of God. We fear the loss of freedom and privilege and blessing in ministry by virtue of sin. Now, when we understand this overarching wisdom, we can ask the question, okay, well, does Proverbs give me insight into how I may more effectively fear God? And yes, it does. Namely, guard your heart and study your Bible. Beloved, you fear God by guarding your heart. Now, when we think of the word heart, the word heart I think it would be accurate to say, is the most important anthropological term in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word law, translated as heart, is used 556 times in the Old Testament. And the Hebrew heart is synonymous with the mind, with the inner man, with the will, namely the soul. The heart that is being described here is that part of you that lasts forever. It's not just the big organ in your chest that is a wonderful piece, masterpiece of God's physical creation. It is who you are as a ultimate man or woman made in the image of God. A great illustration of this, the importance of heart, even in the New Testament. You may remember the Apostle Paul when he was on his second missionary journey. And in Acts chapter 16, he went from Troas to Samothrace to Neapolis on to Philippi. And then when he was in Philippi, there wasn't a synagogue there for him to go to. So he went to the river because that was a place of prayer that even carried forward from the Old Testament Psalms. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 13, you'll read these words it says the good Dr. Luke says on the Sabbath day we went outside so Luke was with Paul we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing there would be a place of prayer and we sat down and began speaking to the woman who had assembled so it's amazing because it seems almost like a happenstance type of event but this is a massive momentous pivoting point in human history it was at this point in time that God basically took the gospel from the east to the west from Asia to Europe from the occidental world excuse me from the oriental world into the occidental world but in verse 14 the Luke continues and there was a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira She was a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, and she was listening to them pray. So Lydia was a businesswoman. She was a devout woman. She was a proselyte into Judaism. She was a religious woman, but she wasn't yet a Christian. But she left the river change because Luke finishes out his treatment at the end of verse 14 by saying, and the Lord, watch this, opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Beloved, the heart is who you are. Your heart is what needs to be open to God, and your heart is what you as a new creature in Christ Jesus, with a new heart that God has given you by virtue of even the new covenant from Ezekiel 36, even was prophesied in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, that you must guard and protect before the Lord. And that's why Solomon writes in Proverbs 4, verse 20 through 23, he says, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. 
Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to all their whole body. And then verse 23, watch over your heart with all diligence. For from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart. Keep your heart. Guard your heart. That is the point. That is what Solomon is driving home to us. And he continues something similar. He says something similar actually prior, at least as we have it here before us in our Bibles, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. He said there, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. So, beloved, you fear your God by guarding your heart. And secondly, you fear God by studying your Bible. It has been wisely said it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Uh, Here are just a few verses from Solomon, and this is all in the context of the word being passed to the child, to the son. Proverbs 1, verse 8, he says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Chapter 2, verse 1, My son, receive my sayings and treasure my commandments within you. Chapter 4, verse 1, Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention to, that, so that you may gain understanding. Chapter 5, verse 7. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. And chapter 7, verse 1. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. So, beloved, different dimension, different actions, different verbs describing what it means to fear God, what it means to guard the word of truth in your heart, and what it means to even study the Bible. Hear the word. Don't forsake your mother's teaching. Receive my sayings. Treasure my commandments. Give attention to, listen to, do not depart from these words. And what's amazing, even when we think in the context of receiving the truth, and even if we think in the context of parents instructing children, there are multiple examples in scripture. Many of them, if perhaps not even most, the majority of them, are godly women. And I'm going to give you three wonderful illustrations of godly women that did precisely this. One from Proverbs, and then two from the Apostle Paul. In Proverbs 31, King Lemuel. When King Lemuel wrote the 31st last chapter of Proverbs, where he describes the quintessential godly Proverbs 31 woman, he opens up his writing in Proverbs 31, verse 1, the words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. King Lemuel had a godly mother that taught him the truth of God. In 2 Timothy, when Paul was writing his last letter to his young protege, Timothy, when Paul was in prison awaiting execution at the hands of the Roman government, he opened up in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes to Timothy, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, two godly women. A couple chapters later, in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul there says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, 
knowing from whom you have learned them. So Paul there is pointing to the A-team of Lois and Eunice and Paul. And he continues, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Beloved, these are three stellar examples, in this case, of not just godly believers, but godly women faithfully teaching the wisdom of God. Back in Proverbs, two more. Proverbs 8, verse 11, Solomon describes the value of the Bible. He says, wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. And then he gives, we could look at it by way of application, chapter 4, verse 10, He says, hear my son and accept my sayings and the years of your life will be many. So beloved, fear your God. That is the first wisdom for us to live and to learn yet again. The second wisdom to live and to learn is to control your body. So we move from looking upwards to God to looking inward at self. Control your body. And in Proverbs, two more prevalent themes are be holy and be healthy be holy and healthy take care of the temple from the lesser to the greater take care of this temple take care of this body and then to the greater take care of the temple of the lord which if we jump forward to the new testament especially as we've been going through ephesians we know that it is the beautiful church of god the one redeemed humanity that is the temple of God. But again, still on the lesser before we get to the fuller, there is in Proverbs a relationship between godliness, wisdom, and health. Now, we read a couple verses earlier, one from chapter 3 and one from chapter 4, where basically he said, if you heed this wisdom, if you follow this wisdom, it will add years to your life. If you know Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 3, or if you were here last week, you know that when Paul tells the young children to obey your parents, and when he tells all children to honor your parents, he says, and it will add to your years on this earth. And we understand that that doesn't mean we'll all live to be 100 if we, by God's grace and mercy, obey this commandment. It is a general truth. For example, you can think of the phrase, look before you leap. That doesn't mean that the first time you leap without looking, you're going to die. What that means is it's a good idea. The wise man, the wise woman, the wise child will look before they leap. That's the type of general truth and axiomatic wisdom and principle that he brings out here. But in the context of the health, Proverbs 14, verse 30, Solomon writes, A tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bones. Chapter 15, verse 30, he says, Bright eyes gladden the heart. Good news puts fat on the bones. Now, might need a little context in that. This is in a society where they didn't have obesity and all the comorbidities that go with it on a normal basis. This was where they were engaged in the battle for the bread, so the fat on the bones was a good thing. I remember growing up as a new Christian in the Pacific Northwest in Oregon, and it took me a couple years to realize that when it describes how the rain falls on the just and the unjust, that was talking about blessing, not a curse. In any event, Proverbs 17, verse 22, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. So again, beloved, there is a causality, there is a connection in Proverbs between godliness and wisdom and health. 
In 23 verse 20, Solomon says, don't even associate with a drunkard or a glutton. He says, don't be with heavy drinkers of wine or gluttonous eaters of meat. Now, we, of course, focus on the holy, not on the health. But a lack of discipline in your health will damage your holy. That is the point. But let's move from the lesser to the greater. Looking at the holiness, how can we control our body? And skimming through some different principles within Proverbs, fix your gaze. Fix your gaze. You control your body by fixing your gaze. Beloved, the point here is what you do with your eyes will have a massive impact on a whole sequence of events that come afterwards. In chapter 4, verse 25, Solomon says, Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Chapter 7, verse 2, he says, keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. So keep our eyes fixed, our gaze set on the word of God, on the cross, on the forgiveness of sin that we have in Christ. Husbands, keep your eyes, keep your gaze fixed on the beautiful gift of your wife. Wives, keep your eyes fixed on the husband that God has given you. Children, keep your eyes fixed on the prize, the goal, which is salvation, which is found in Christ Jesus. And how many sad illustrations are there to the contrary? If Eve had not looked upon the fruit of the one tree that God said you may not eat of this, what would have happened? If Lot's wife had kept her gaze fixed forward rather than looking back, Perhaps in God's economy, she might have been a model of faith rather than being turned into a pillar of salt and a lesson of God's judgment. If Solomon's father, David, had not let his eyes wander onto Bathsheba, what might that have meant in terms of the sword never departing from his house or even him building the temple? Beloved, let us be like Jesus and keep our eyes fixed on the prize, on the goal, on Calvary, on the cross. So, You control your body by fixing your gaze. Second, protect your path. Another truth out of all of Scripture and life and Proverbs is you can tell a whole lot about a person by how they walk, where they walk, and with whom they walk. This is stated by Solomon both positively and negatively. Positively, chapter 2, verse 7 God stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Verse 20, same chapter. So you will walk in the way of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous. Chapter 3, verse 23. Then you will walk in your way securely and your foot will not stumble. And stated negatively. Chapter 1, verse 15. My son, do not walk in the way with sinners who would entice you sinners who would entice you from verse 10 do not walk in the way with those sinners who would entice you keep your feet from their path so beloved fix your gaze protect your path the third way in which you control your body is watch your words and there is a plethora there are so many proverbs about this and I was, I was thinking about this. I was reminded of the story that was told of a little farm boy that went running into the house with great excitement holding on to a dead rat by the tail. 
And he came in, and he didn't realize in his excitement that the local pastor was there sitting down having a conversation with his father. And the little guy burst into the home. He said, Daddy, Daddy, look what I caught. I, I, I ca- saw it crawling around the corner of the barn. I got a board, and I smacked it over the head. Then I grabbed it, and I threw it against the barn wall. Then I kicked it as hard as I could. And it was right at that point in time he looked over and saw the pastor, and he said, and, and then, preacher, sir, the Lord called the rat home. Now, we can, we can excuse that in, in a little guy, that's okay, but beloved, the point here is as grown-ups, as people that are growing, and even as young children that are growing, we want to, the way Christ says it, let our yes be a yes and our no be a no. It, we should guard every word that comes from our mouth. We should trust God, pray God, that as he gives us his wisdom, as we guard his truth in our hearts, that what will flow through our lips will be a life-giving spring from that with our words. And the way Solomon states it positively, chapter 16, verse 24, pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Chapter 18, verse 20, with the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach will be satisfied. He will be satisfied with the product of his lips. In chapter 15, verse 23, a man has joy in an apt answer, and how delightful is a timely word, or stated negatively. And this is just two verses out of many, many. Proverbs 18, verses 6 and 7, a fool's lips bring strife, and his mouth calls for blows. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. And then, One more way, also in a Hebrew antithetical parallelism where he basically says, well, this is what, this is the way of the righteous. This is the way of the wicked. Here's the consequences for disobedience. Here's the blessings from obedience. Chapter 10, verse 19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Chapter 10, verses 31 and 32, the mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom, but the perverted tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous bring forth what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked, that is what is perverted. And then finally, by way of application, in chapter 18, verse 21, Solomon kind of puts them all together and basically says, you will eat the fruit of your words in one way or the other. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. It will either be pleasing choice, life-giving fruit, or it will be rancid, poisonous fruit. Fix your gaze, protect your path, watch your words. Choose your friends wisely. This is the first, excuse me, the fourth way in which you control your body. Chapter 13, verse 20, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. 22, verses 24 and 25, do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man lest you learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. And I don't have time, and these references will be in the notes when we post them on the web, but if you're taking notes, chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, Chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, verses 20 through 22. Chapter 4, verses 14 through 19, and 24 through 27. 
the companions that you choose for yourself are massively important before the Lord. At whatever age you are, and even young people, that's why if God has given you a godly mommy and daddy, that's why they have the wisdom to help you know whom you should hang with. You see, dead fish go with the flow. Live fish swim upstream. And where you spend eternity, heaven or hell, will be determined by whose voice you listen to. Will you be listening to the voice of the world and believing it? Or will you be listening to the voice of the word of God, which gives life and points the way of forgiveness and the path of peace by the Prince of Peace? And just a side note here, kind of in the context of controlling your body and the whole dimension of even companionship, beloved, in the context of a Christian, a reclusive Christian is an unhealthy Christian. A hermit Christian is a hampered and harmed Christian. Beloved, as we've seen through Ephesians, God created you to be part of the new reconciled humanity. Don't amputate yourself from the body of Christ. Don't amputate yourself from the body life of Christ. So guard your heart. Control your body. The third wisdom to live and to learn or to learn and to live from Proverbs is love your neighbor. So we looked upwards, looked inwards. Now we look outwards. And we know that Moses said in Leviticus 19, Moses said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God commands through Moses. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Solomon, God instructs through Solomon, Proverbs 12, verse 26, the righteous is like a guide, or is a guide to his neighbor. Now, we can look at that and even say that it was, understand that when Christ cited the second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. He is quoting from Leviticus 19, 19, verse 18. We can look at Solomon's words there in Proverbs 12 and say, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but who is my neighbor? Well, the neighborhood of the first century Jewish people, the Israel, the first century Israel for Christ and even the... Ninth century uh, Israel of Solomon was fellow Jews and maybe proselyte Gentiles. But Jesus answered the question to this in first century Israel. Remember in Luke chapter 10? In Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29, there was a certain lawyer that came and he's trying to trap Jesus. And he asked him a question. He said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Christ quoted this. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. And then the lawyer followed up with, okay, well, who is my neighbor? And again, in his thinking, in the culture of the time, he would think of, well, just Israel and maybe some Gentiles that have come in. And what Jesus did to correct that to answer was he told the story of the good Samaritan. And the point he was doing there was not that you, even his first answer, love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus wasn't saying you will earn eternal life by loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was describing this is what life looks like for someone that has eternal life. He or she loves his neighbor. And when he told the story of the Good Samaritan, he wasn't using that to illustrate how a Good Samaritan can earn his salvation. He was using that to describe what the real kind of love for a neighbor looks like. And more to the point, he was taking that lawyer's thinking away from the restricted neighborhood of Israel to the universal neighborhood of anybody and everybody. 
The neighborhood of Jesus is all mankind. So, if now we understand that we are to love our neighbor, now that we understand our neighbor is everybody, what does loving our neighbor look like in Proverbs? We don't have time to expand on all these, but briefly, it is honor and obey your parents. If we are thinking this in the context of children, the closest neighbor, if you're a young child you have, is your mom and your dad. And you are to obey your mom and dad, and all of us at any point in time are to honor our mother and father. And we don't need to elaborate on this too much out of Proverbs because this is precisely what we covered last week in Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 3. But one of the ways in which the dimension of obeying for young children and of all children to honor mother and father is to receive instruction, to listen to instruction, to give heed to instruction. Some of the Proverbs that I read before, and to receive correction, to receive reproof, to receive discipline. For example, chapter 3, verse 11, Solomon says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. You see, we understand that our obedience, our honor of mother and father is a direct reflection and is kind of a signal and a pointing towards how we will obey and honor God our father. In the negative sense, you can be sure that the child who won't honor the ones who gave him life and living won't honor anyone else and certainly won't honor God. And beloved, a common theme in Proverbs is the wise man, the wise woman, wise child receives correction, reproof, discipline, and instruction. So honor and obey your parents. The second way you can love your neighbor is work hard. You love your boss. You love your coworkers. You love your customers. And in a sense, you're extending love to yourself. You don't need to learn to love yourself. We all love ourselves too much. That's our problem, but that's a side topic. The great thinker Thomas Sowell had these choice words. He said, there are a great many people who think the world owes them an awful lot, but they feel no need to explain what they've contributed to the world that led to this great debt. And the whole idea of being a disciplined, hard worker is throughout Proverbs. Look at Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 11. It's the great illustration of the ant. Proverbs 6, verse 6 Solomon says, go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe. (laughs) That's a great idea. We need to add that to our repertoire. (laughs) Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler, she prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Uh, That's stated negatively. Stated in contrast, turn over to Proverbs chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. The Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger, but he will thrust aside the craving of the wicked. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. 
He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. Beloved, in I think it's Proverbs 26, there's an ama- I don't have time to go there, but there's an amazing passage where, if you will remember in Proverbs, God uses through Solomon blistering language for a fool. And in Proverbs, again, I think it's 26, he basically casts a sluggard in the light of a fool, and he says a fool is better off than a sluggard. So laziness in being a sluggard is a wicked sin before God. So work hard. That is a way in which we can control our body. Honor and obey your parents. Work hard. And then the third last one, we'll do this briefly. Be faithful to your wife. So if you're blessed, if you're blessed to be married, the most intimate, nearest neighbor is your wife, is your husband. And I put this as be faithful to your wife because in Proverbs, that's the primary thrust is talking about a man and how he needs to be faithful to his wife. But of course, ladies, you need to be faithful to your husbands as well. And of course, we saw this in beautiful poetic language and perhaps the greatest discourse to husbands and wives in Scripture in Ephesians 5, 22 through 23. Uh, Proverbs chapter 5, I don't have time to read through that, but I would commend to you later, read through Proverbs 5, and there are tremendously strong warning, tr- tremendously strong warnings against being unfaithful to your wife, as well as tremendously strong blessings and encouragements to be faithful to your wife, to be faithful to your husband. So, beloved, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor by, by what? Honoring and obeying your parents, working hard, being faithful to your wife, and training your children, which we won't cover here. That will take us three weeks from now when we get into Ephesians 6, verse 4. David will be bringing the sermons the next two Sundays. Beloved, Understand this, child, older child, man, woman, older woman, old man. I can get away saying old man. I, I, I learned my lesson. <laughs> by hearing and giving heed to this wisdom, by listening and learning this wisdom, you won't merely survive in the blistering heat of this ever-increasing anti-Christian world. You won't merely survive you will thrive by God's grace and mercy by implementing the wisdom that God gives us here in the pages of scripture even in the blistering heat of this ever-increasing anti-Christian world children young and old who are well pleasing to the Lord beloved this is the first Sunday of the month so as such we will be going to the communion table and by way of segue to that in the Scientific American of all places, the, art, the uh, journal, in the year 1885, in the March issue, they had an article, The House of a Thousand Terrors. And it was describing a house that stood for centuries in the marketplace in Rotterdam, Netherlands. And three centuries before the Scientific American published this article, during the 16th century, the Dutch people rose in revolt against King Philip II of Spain. The king sent a great army to suppress the rebellion. Rotterdam held out for a long time, but finally surrendered. The Spanish Armada, the conquering army, went from house to house, searching out citizens and killing them in their homes. But there were a group of men and women and children who were hiding in a corner house. When they heard the soldiers approaching, a thousand terrors gripped their hearts. 
But a young man in the house had an idea. He took a goat that was in the house, killed it, and poured the blood under the doorway out into the street. When the soldiers reached the house, they began to batter down the door, but then they noticed the blood coming out from under the door, and the soldiers said, Come away, the work is already done. Look at the blood beneath the door. And as a result, all the souls in the house escaped. Beloved, what a beautiful picture and a reminder for us as we go to the communion table to celebrate what Christ has done for us, that God's wrath, God's judgment, which is due us because of our sin, because of our rebellion, has already been taken care of. The blood of Christ was shed at the cross. Beloved, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer before we go to the table. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. Lord, we thank you. Lord God, for the wisdom in all of the pages of Scripture, we praise you and thank you, God, for removing the scales of darkness from our eyes so that we can see and remove the plugs from our ears so that we can hear. And by giving us the indwelling Holy Spirit to be able to be obedient, to follow after and to learn and to own and to implement and exercise the great wisdom in all of Scripture, especially in the beautiful book of Proverbs. And we praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking the punishment on our behalf. We praise you and thank you that there is a promise that one day when we see you face to face in heaven, we'll drink of the cup of the vine with you in person. In the meantime, we thank you for this ordinance you have given your New Testament church to do this in remembrance of the great gift of salvation which you accomplished on our behalf. And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and we now approach the table. Amen.